Hey everybody, and welcome to May Day Majors, everybody's favorite pagan podcast. Liam, are you excited to dance around the Maypole? You know I am. I've been covering myself in lavender honey for weeks to make sure that I have tons of bugs attached to my supple young body. And I've been practicing all my favorite ritualistic fiddle tunes. All of them. The one... The one that's kind of Celtic and creepy. The other one that's kind of Celtic and creepy. The other one that's kind of Celtic and creepy. Celtic? And the other one that's just I had an amazing grace. <laughs> this is Media Majors. <laughs> our intros are so dumb. They are, yeah, we really try to bring our, our worst game to the table. We keep bringing apples and apples to this goddamn table. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, this is Media Majors, a podcast about major media. I'm... Tom Lock or let me start that over again. This is Media Majors, a storytelling podcast about major media where myself, Tom Lockney, tells a story. I'm just dying now. So this is Media Majors. It's a podcast <laughs> about you. major media. Um, I'm Liam Senior. I tell a story about movies and TV. That's Tom Lockney, who lost the chance to say his own name because he fucked it up <laughs> twice. <laughs> yep. He tells a story about video games and internet cultures. We don't know what the other one's going to talk about. Today's going to be a pretty big episode because we're both very excited. So let's yep. get the ball rolling. Tom, roll that ball down the hill. All right. Brief note at the beginning. This is another uh, franchise retrospective, sort of like the Prey episode, but it's it's going to be just about uh, the core Far Cry franchise. Uh, so that's one and two. Uh, think of this more as like a like an English cultural course, where the story is less of a series of events and more the influences that led to each finished product. Uh, and three, just a minor trigger warning for just like general racism in the Far Cry games. In the Far Cry games, who would have thunk it? Get the fuck out of town. Chapter one, a Far Cry from far cry ah it's the looks he gives me when he says these chapter names you guys (laughs) in 2004 the far cry franchise starts small but solid published by ubisoft the first game is developed by crytek hence its name a fun fact about crytek they like putting the word cry in literally every single one of their products uh Hmm. e.g crisis spelled a c-r-y well, I always liked the name Far Cry because it was like, well, you're a Far Cry's away from home, I assumed. Crytek is a leader amongst game tech, so their products always have a layer of sheen and visual polish that holds up even today. Charlie, Martin, or Emilio? Sheen. Oh. Whoa, God. <laughs> that joke broke your brain! That joke just, like, just wrecked me. Oh, I love it. The first Far Cry sold pretty well, 730,000 units within four months of release, which is really good, and also received critical acclaim. Uh, now, as with Prey, this is a series that went uh, underwent a severe identity crisis, so I think it's prudent to discuss uh, Identity cry. Says, spelled with Y. Hey, man, quit poaching my goofs, okay? Sorry, Tom. Until they make it illegal, I'm going to poach all your goofs and sell their pelts for cash. Uh, just like Far Cry. More like Far Crimes. Nope, not more like that. So I'm going to talk about sort of the plots of uh, the series, starting with the first one, which is really important, especially in the context of the rest of the series. 
Jack Carver has left his mysterious and bitter past behind him and dropped out of a society. Which one? To run a boat charter business in the South Pacific. He is hired by a woman named Valerie Constantine to take her secretly to an uncharted island in Micronesia. After Val takes off on her own with a jet ski, Jack's boat is blown apart by a rocket. With help of a man named Doyle, Jack travels across the various islands battling mysterious mercenaries in search for Val. Through encounters with Trigens, genetically altered beasts, and information from Doyle, Jack soon discovers that the island is part of an experiment involving genetic modification funded by the genetic company Krieger Corp and is led by its CEO, Dr. Krieger. Man, this took a turn. That old man who read the description to us died. Video games are so fucking stupid. They really, truly are, Tom. Like, they hey, really, a truly island, are. And there's like political intrigue, but also there's mutants. So the game does well, meaning it's going to get a sequel, which brings us to chapter two. Far Cry 2, Cry Farther. That's pretty good. I'll give you that one. Released in 2008, Far Cry 2 is uh, now developed in-house by Ubisoft Montreal. Ubisoft Quebec. <laughs> Clint Hawking is this games industry figure who's just good at making shit good. He's just a smart guy. There are some tonal differences between one and two. You know, new developer, new direction. Uh, new direction the first far cry was sort of your typical power fantasy like i'm a beefy boy i got guns and i'm good at using them uh here's how far cry 2 opens you catch fucking malaria we're up row should have gotten them shots bud for the entire time you play the game you have to take medication every 30 to 40 minutes to prevent your player character from going blind and then dying of malaria of fucking malaria of the disease Malaria. Far Cry 2 is a very different kind of animal. Far Cry 2 is the malaria of video games. Tom Lockney. <laughs> For one thing, it's set in Africa, which is pretty unique. Very few video games are set in Africa unless you're there to kill Africans because video games still really struggle with race stuff, guys. Um, that mutagen shit, fuck that. It's gone. Like, stricken from the record, from the canon, from the series. I was about to it, say, it, and it does not return... Unless Ever. Far Cry 5 is pulling a crazy trick up its sleeve. You like animals? We got them. Only herbivores, though. Uh, fuck a carnivore. Fuck a carnivore going straight from the underground. Uh, that joke made absolutely no sense. It's also important to note that this game establishes the notion of sort of like the legendary villain. The villain is this guy named the Jackal, who's this big arms dealer in Africa or whatever. Um, and that they have some sort of relationship to the player. In the opening of the game, you catch fucking malaria, and you pass out, and you wake up, and the jackal is standing over you in this shitty motel, and he's like, you want to fucking kill me? You're going to, like, like you're going to see some shit first, man. Uh, reminds me back of my days of grade school. So it sort of enhanced the standard protagonist-antagonist relationship into something a little more personal, which didn't typically happen in games a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a completely open world, populated by outposts and objectives for the player to complete in whatever way they wanted. It's the early framework for what will become known as like the open world a la Ubisoft. Ubisoft Quebec. 
Far Cry 2 is also an extremely punishing game. This intense commitment to, to punishing realism pushed the designers to model what were, at the time, very novel and punchy aspects of play. You navigate using a physical map. Like, like you press the map button, and your character in the game holds up a map without the game pausing. I'm sure that games had done this before. Lots of games have done them since. All of them have been inspired by Far Cry 2. There was real-time weather, which would affect play, and most importantly, there were realistic physics, where you'll throw a grenade up a hill, and it will roll down and kill you. And so, like, Far Cry... That, that was, like, Far Cry 2. That's what that game was for like me and so many other people was Far like, Cry 2 a grenade on a hill of a game Tom Lockney that's how people think about this game is like weird funny shit happens like you throw a grenade up a hill it rolls down and it kills you so all this culminates in a game that prioritized emergent gameplay and storytelling over uh, crafted narrative set pieces uh, with heretofore unseen success uh, do you know does everybody know what I mean by emergent gameplay uh, let me let me ask the crowd I'm with. Hey guys, guys, Tom wants to know if you, t Devin, Devin, put down that tarantula. I don't know where oh, you got God. it. It's not ours. Uh, you might want to explain it to Devin. Got a thing for tarantula. Yeah, you might want to explain it. Devin's not gonna listen otherwise. When there's like a system, like like physics engines or something like that, that will cause objects to move in a certain way and behave in a certain way, and then the world is designed around, uh those systems being implemented where, where it is completely up to the player to implement them and to experience them and then a thing will just like happen randomly and you will get a story about that tom francis game developer did gunpoint working on uh heat signature right now uh talked about this on the crate and crowbar great pc gaming podcast about uh one of the spin-offs of the far cry franchise far cry primal where like he was like I was hunting this this deer or whatever and then a bear showed up and it was on fire and it started attacking hunters and then the hunters killed the bear and but then the hunters caught on fire so I killed the hunters like that's emergent play and emergent storytelling where like these things happen that were not preordained by the designers like nobody said okay this bear is going to show up here and then these things are going to fight like he doesn't even like we don't even know why that bear was on fire it just was organic moments that are stories unto themselves and there's lots of ways that it can manifest like that's just a far cry example anyways uh so so it was a fucking hit because like no first person shooter had really done something to this level with this level of success before i cannot overstate how fucking important far cry 2 was to just like game design you it's say you can't crazy. overstate it but if i hedged my bets chapter three more like far crisis of identity oh no you didn't i did though i did do that because i'm a fucking just a dirty animal much of the success of Far Cry 2's design is credited to Clint Hawking's directorial oversight. So everybody excited to see him keep the magic going in Far Cry 3? Oops. Nope. He gets fired. He No, no, no. He doesn't get fired. He just resigns in 2010. So here's what Ubisoft has to work with. Two critically and commercially successful games that could not be more different from one another. They feel an obligation to continue the series. Obviously, it's profitable. They, you know, they're fucking chasing that paper. Um, but they have no idea what to do with it. So they go back to the drawing board, and what we get is sort of a merging between the two. Uh, producer Dan Hay 
specifically said that Far Cry 3 was created to merge the systemic feel and emotional feel of the previous two Far Cry games, causing Far Cry 3 to go in a, quote, very, very surprising direction. A mythologized antagonist. All the Far Cry 3 promo material features a man named Voss, who's this, like, charismatic psychopath, um, even though he's not even the primary antagonist nope. of the game. You like systems? This one's got more. Uh, don't worry, folks. The grenades still roll down hills. It's got that open world going. It's got animals, but this time it's got carnivores. And fucking sharks and Komodo dragons and boars. I played Far Cry 3. There's no weapon degradation. They are making they are making a concerted effort to make Far Cry 3 uh, a little more watered down, a little more accessible. Uh, also, they add drug sequences that have since become a staple of the franchise. <laughs> yep. It's so that's so weird that this like mainstream triple A game has like a a feature which is just like yeah you get fucking high in our games mm-hmm. do this dab with me pussy and a fucking terrible story though he would go on to defend his writing or the writing claiming it to be satire writer Jeffrey Yohalem's earlier statements contradict this claim painting Far Cry 3's story as an earnest exploration of uh, quote what shooting means and what it does to humanity here's another quote what happens when that guy is put into a situation where he has to survive minute by minute and save his friends will he pick up a gun and how does that affect him you play as a boy named Jason Brody yep that's his name yeah he's a real bro yeah, a dude who looks like a Bachelor contestant. He shows up on a series of islands between the Indian and Pacific Oceans. And, shocker, guys, things get pretty fucking racist. White savior over, 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 overtones. <laughs> I think the term, it's, it's overt tones. Uh, this is maybe one of the most white savior, white savior narratives in video games and maybe 21st century fiction. It's got hypersexualized indigenous women treated as transgressive, taboo, sex scenes in the game that are very explicit. And it's like, whoa, like you're fucking the native woman. Like, ugh. It's got homophobia, it's got tokenism, it's got mystical Negro characters, it's got native mysticism, it's got like bullshit. Like the drug stuff is all like... Wow, like Jason's got to go on a vision quest to find himself. Yeah, you should say it's got stereotypical native misses. Like, they didn't do research into the actual cultures and, like, look up their actual, like, uh, what their actual beliefs were regarding Oh, it's, like, yeah, it's completely fucking made up. Yeah, holy fucking shit. Far Cry 3 is, like, next-level racist. Like, I, I can't fucking believe nobody, like, stopped the people writing this game and were like, hey, guys, you cannot do this. I remember not finishing it just because I felt uncomfortable playing it whenever I'd run into another character. Uh, And people sounded off. Rightly so. Uh, Which brings us to chapter four. Far cries for improvement. (laughs) Uh, Despite criticisms, the game was considered a stellar mechanical work and sold well, solidifying its place as a Ubisoft temple franchise. Skyrim with guns, shouted 12-year-old boys across the globe. Which presents them with another sequel problem hey guys we're gonna make another one of these things but how in the fuck do we handle how like fucking racist far cry 3 was uh so race is inevitably going to come into play so they really don't have just ignore it as an option make the story about racial identity which is extremely dangerous given the series track record or they want to package this all within series tropes like charismatic villain you do drugs you shoot people 
uh, they target video games at a white male demographic, uh, which is bad and a mistake. Make games for everybody. Ugh. So they've made their racist bed, and boy, howdy, are they going to sleep in it. Big Confederate flag comforter. Oh, man. In 2014, so in 2014, Ubisoft released Far Cry 4. Uh, the game is set in the nation of Kirat, a fictional Himalayan country currently undergoing a civil war. The two factions... Good. Are the... Good yeah. idea so far. Yeah. Uh, the two factions... Making it, the... making it so much easier for yourselves. <laughs> hey, we don't want to deal with uh, race, so we're going to make a fictional place in the middle of a horrible, like a war-torn problematic area and then give them a civil war. Oh, guys, what we wrote ourselves into a hole of negativity and bad ideas. Oh, man. Uh, the two factions are the karate regime... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The karate regime? Kirat. Because the nation is Kirat. So, Kirati. <laughs> Dude, like, this place doesn't fucking exist, man. Karate um, regime! Uh, led by the dashing yet bloodthirsty pagan men, who's this, like, horrible dictator. And uh, the other faction is the Golden Path, a fracturing rebellion led by uh, Sobal and Amita, two leaders with conflicting goals for the revolution. You play as... Ajay Gal, son to Ishwari and Mohan Gal, and here's where they start to play with, like very, like explicitly with race and nationality. Uh, Ajay is fully karate, but he has lived his whole <laughs> life, his whole karate! life in the West. He was raised in America, his fa- and educated there as well. His father was the founder of the Golden Path. So he's like this Westerner who's like from that country. So they're trying to do something there. Uh, Pagan Min is also an extremely Westernized ruler, even though he's also, I, I, if, if memory serves, he is karate. Uh, <laughs> so he sports like trendy fashions. Like he's got like that, a black like, belt. <laughs> he's got this like fancy purple suit and he's really into crushing the uh, karate religion. And he makes frequent <laughs> oh Western God. pop culture references. Like, he's like, oh, man, I was listening to that new Kanye West album. Uh, though it's not a white savior narrative, it is definitely a Western savior narrative. Valorizing Ajay's Western sensibilities while demonizing pagan men's appropriation of, like, quote-unquote, superficial Western culture. It's like, tr- it's like trying to say that appropriation is bad when it itself is appropriating Himalayan cultures to create this video game where you just shoot a bunch of people. And you're a karate! Yeah, so, like, Far Cry 4, still super racist. It's just racist in a different way from Far Cry 3. Chapter 5. Far Cry run out of puns. <laughs> nice. The series has been more or less dormant for the last three years, with only a spinoff, the the prehistoric themed Far Cry Primal, being released in the interim. Uh, but on May twenty fourth, Ubisoft announced Far Cry Five with a teaser trailer and a promotional image. So far, the only info that we have is that this is the first in the series to be set in America, Montana, to be exact, mm-hmm. and that the villains are a far right conservative Christian cons- uh, cult. So this suggests a couple of things. One, maybe they finally figured out, hey, it's kind of gross that our whole franchise is built around fetishizing foreign lands. Uh, And two, maybe they went, hey, maybe we should stop having all our games be about killing foreigners. And three, uh, man, there's going to be a lot of really pissed off white people. (laughs) Actually, there already are. 
yep. several alt-right accounts, as well as a plethora of just like general conservatives, Nazis, and other right-leaning figures have threatened to boycott the game. I've set you up for the for the oh, far crimey a fucking river. And ma- Nazi punks, fuck off. Yeah, far yeah. You we gotta well, go over what setting me up means. <laughs> I I was saying I was I was saying you should have said far crimey a river, but. No, I, I got you, but we need to talk about your setups. Continue. <laughs> I would be willing to bet my actual human life that these are the, that these same people shouted down people of color who said, hey, these games are kind of racist and that makes me uncomfortable. Also, possible if not probable that this game is also going to end up being like super duper racist, like doing some like both side shit kind of... I mean, we'll see because they love to like humanize and puff up their villains. Right now, the best thing that we can hope for is that maybe we get a game about killing bigots. And now you know how Far Cry kind of morphed and changed as a series, and how it sort of pulled itself in a in a really problematic direction, and maybe is going to not do that this time. Hopefully, and that time will only tell. Is my story. What an interesting tale you've weaved. We're going to take a quick break. Yeah, we are. To hear an ad from another show on the Major Casts Network. Hi there, I'm Eric McAdams. I host the podcast Big Time Whoopsies, a podcast about incompetence on a grand scale. Every other Wednesday on the Major Cast Network or wherever podcasts are downloaded. Please listen. Please. Please. Boy, what a what a fantastic advertisement! You betcha. I guess it's my turn. It absolutely is. There is only two of us, and I did go first, Liam. I'm not fully convinced. <laughs> All right. The secret, the secret third partner of Media Majors, Durf, the ghost, Durf Media Major. That's where we got the name from. This story. Uh, so there's a light trigger warning because it gets pretty violent at some point. All right. So it's just um, general violence? Yeah. I'm trying to think. This doesn't really have a name. Uh, but we'll just call it the house at Cielo Drive for now. 10050 Cielo Drive is the street address of a former luxury home in Benedict Canyon, a part of Bever- Beverly Crest, north of Beverly Hills, L.A. Uh, the residence Beverly has been occupied... Hills. Stop. That's Stop. Stop it, today. Rivers. River! We do not do Far that. Far cry river. me a river, Cuomo. Yeah. <laughs> Rivers Cuomo. Oh, boy. Uh, the original house was designed by Robert Byrd in 1942 for French actress Michelle Morgan. It faced east and featured a stone fireplace, beam ceilings, paned windows, a loft above the living room, a swimming pool, a guest house and was surrounded by thick pine trees and flowering cherry. Sounds like a big old house. Yeah. Famous residents included Cary Grant, Dylan Cannon, Henry Fonda, but another famous resident was a guy named Terry Melcher. Part two. Doris Day, born Doris Marianne Kappelhoff, April 3rd, 1922, is an American actress, singer, and animal welfare activist. After she began her career as a big band singer in 39, uh, she had a hit recording, Sentimental Journey, in 45, and she embarked on a solo career, making um, more than 650 songs from 47 to 67, making her one of the most popular and acclaimed singers of the 20th century. 
and 48, she was given a key part in the film Romance on the High Seas, despite not having any acting experience. And she became a huge career star uh, for 20 years and was in a string of musicals and romantic comedies. She worked with people like Rock Hudson and Clark Gable and Cary Grant. She was very, very famous. And her only child was a music producer and songwriter named Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was born in 1942 when the house was actually being built. Um, he was instrumental in shaping the California sound and Amer uh, American West Coast rock music in the late 60s during the nascent counterculture era. Uh, with figures like Jack Nicholson, Henry Fonda, and Melcher's girlfriend, Candace Bergman. Uh, they were all kind of part of the like, new Hollywood, just very young Hollywood in the 70s. Uh, and Terry Melcher's whole thing was that he was a music producer, producing The, the Birds' first two albums. And um, Ugh, I think, you know what, some people like them, but I think they're for the birds. I think this is like the my highest like pun to speech ratio in a media majors episode to date. Easily. Uh, and in the 60s, Melcher became acquainted with the Beach Boys. He connected Brian Wilson to Van Dyke Parks, who would write Smile. And uh, he produced several Beach Boy songs in the 80s and 90s, including the terrible song Kokomo. But when Melcher was young, he was closest with the Beach Boys drummer, Dennis Wilson. They became good friends during the recording of Pet Sounds and would go out and hang out at night and go to the clubs after recording during the days. And during this time, Dennis introduced Melcher to one of his like Dennis's kind of oddball friends this guy named Chuck who was an inspiring musician he Dennis introduced him at a house party and they kind of hung out all night and when Dennis dropped Terry off at home he actually brought Chuck along in the car yeah okay. and that was when he lived at the Cielo house so with time Melcher's associate Greg Jacobson became fascinated with Chuck's philosophy and lifestyle he was very strange and he began he urged Terry you gotta record this guy he's he could be the next big thing Terry weird Terry, you know that sound you're looking for? <coughs> well, then listen to this. <coughs> so, uh, Jesus. Jesus, Marvin Berry. I can't do that voice too long without hurting my little throat. Melcher went down to um, the ranch that Chuck lived at and heard him play. He came back a couple days later with a friend he thought might be interested in recording Chuck. Yeah, nothing really came of it. He kind of really only did it out of obligation to his friend, Dennis Wilson. Melcher was pretty unimpressed with Chuck's music both times. Chuck didn't really take this well. Uh, see? Uh, well, Liam, you're telling me stories about white male musicians, so I'm going to go ahead and get just like that. My rule is like, if you're a white male musician, there's a 90% chance that you're a total fucking scumbag. Well, see, before this interaction happened, before Terry Melcher met Chuck, you know, Dennis Wilson met when him. When Chuck met Terry. Dennis Wilson met him through a kind of weird instance. See, he went to India with the Beatles and a couple other Beach Boy members to visit the Maharishi, and they did a bunch of drugs. And um, It was the 70s. Like, everybody was. It was actually like... the, the mid-60s. Oh, okay. And... Uh, he kind of found this new spiritual side to himself. He learned about Hinduism and mm. and sort of uh, became open to more spiritual stuff. And it was all he could talk about. No, man, so, like I did a bunch of drugs and it changed me, man. And now I'm yeah. Like, now I know all about Buddhism because I took a course one time while I was fucking high out of my mind in the 60s. 
fucking So one day, Dennis is driving, and he picks up these two teenage girls that were hitchhiking. Oh, this was God. in an article written about Dennis Wilson called I Live With 17 Girls. He's a little bit of a scumbag. That's super weird. Wilson says in the article, I told the girls about our involvement with the Maharishi, and they told me that they also had a sort of guru, a, this guy Chuck, who'd recently come out after jail. A sort of guru, meaning scam artist. Yeah, he drifted into crime, but when I, Dennis Wilson, met him, uh, I found that he had great musical ideas. We're writing together now. He's dumb in some ways, but I accept his approach and have learned from him. So I think Dennis Wilson was also just on a ton of drugs. Musician in the 60s, like... That's a safe assumption to make. At first, Dennis Wilson was taken by Chuck in his unorthodox lifestyle. Uh, and Chuck was struggling to become a musician and saw Dennis Wilson, a beach boy, as, you know, a, a means to, to fame, an yeah. end. Yeah. A ticket, ticket to fame. Uh, Wilson even financed some recording sessions with Chuck uh, that other beach boy members attended. Um, and they made a couple of songs, but those likely are never going to see the light of day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a nice thing to do for a friend. Well, in 68, Chuck threatened Wilson uh, with a bullet. Like, he was going to... I've got bullet this bullet said, in my hand, this one single bullet. I don't have a gun, but I'm going to throw it at you real hard, and it's definitely going to bruise. Well, he said to Dennis Wilson, every time you look at it, I want you to think how nice it is your kids are still safe. What in the fuck? Why do people think that's okay to say to another human being? So their friendship oh kind of crumbled, and, and after he yeah. said that, Dennis grabbed oh, that's, that's Chuck. That's just Chuck. He just threatens my kids regularly. Don't even And he threw Chuck into it. the ground. So this meeting with Terry Melcher was really Chuck's only shot, uh, and he thought that Melcher kind of screwed him over, Chuck thought. Chuck decided Terry only cared about money and didn't really care about the art. And that enough was enough. And it seemed clear and clear and to him I that Terry Melcher— I gotta read my Bible again. <laughs> Terry Melcher failed Chuck, not the other way around, hmm. and was keeping his music from the world. That, that's such a fucking, such a typical, like, I can't possibly be the problem. I'm a dude. So on August 8th, 1969, Chuck took one of his followers aside and oh, told him, no. what I want, I want you to go to the house oh, no. where Melcher lives, because they had known, because he had went with him to that party, and I want you to take a couple of the girls I'll send oh, with you. God. Go down there and totally destroy everyone in that house as gruesome as you can. Jesus fucking And they did. Five people were brutally murdered, including a pregnant woman. Oh. And they were shot and stabbed multiple times, and pig was written on the door in blood. Oh, my God. Uh, I Okay. Their bodies would not be discovered until the next morning, and it was one of the most infamous murders in Hollywood history because Chuck's full name was, of course... Charles Mills Manson. You bastard. You fucking <laughs> bastard. You fucking swerved on me. How is that? God. Chuck Manson. What a different world we'd live in if we knew him as this Chuck Manson. This is the Manson. beginning of Charles Manson's murder spree. But Terry Melcher didn't live there. At the behest of his mom, Doris Day, he had told her about Manson and about, you know, how he's got, like, a bunch of zombie girl followers and, and like, brandishes knives. And Doris oh Day God. was like, move move away from <laughs> yeah. your house he knows where you live get the fuck out of there yeah dog and he did and unfortunately other people were murdered the last person to occupy the house was trent Reznor to record his nine inch nail album downward spiral afterwards he left the house citing too much history uh, for him to reside in it and it was demolished after that 
So who was in that house on that horrible night? And what happened to them and what's their story? Well, tune in next week to my follow-up, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's Love Nest, which will be my story for next week. Oh, wait, really? We're doing – this is a medium majors two-parter first. Yep. I'll awesome. be doing the follow-up to this, which will be about uh, the occupants of that house during that night, what, who they were, what happened to them. I won't be going into the history of, of Chuck because he's a – Fuck him! Asshole. Yeah, he and he should him. not be the focus. Of we're this. gonna learn. We're gonna learn about the about the more important things. But yeah, yeah. how is that though? Had you had you going for a bit, huh? That was an. Am- I was like, I was like, what the fuck is Liam talking about? Who's this mm-hmm. Chuck guy? And then you were like, by the way, it's Charles Manson, and I felt like a total total idiot, and it was incredible. That was a very and good it's twist. All because of this one music producer who Dennis Wilson I can't was like, you gotta. <laughs> You gotta re- record. You got, and I've listened to the to the one song that Charles Manson recorded. Oh no, the, he's got like a whole album out, and most actually, if you, it's fascinating to listen to, um, because if you it's listen, really bad. Yeah, because it's awful. Like most of it is him not finishing a song and being like, ah, that song was really good. I just can't remember the lyrics right now. Let's do another one. And then he like waffles and like shoots the shit with people for a while because he's clearly like stalling because he's a fucking talentless hack. I can't believe I didn't see it coming. Cause I knew that mm-hmm. Charles Manson was a friends with a beach boy. And I knew I should have known that Chuck is another name for Charles. Um, uh, and, uh, I, I just think that like, the story of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, that their story is so very sad, tragic. But like, you need to know that story going in, then hearing theirs puts so much context, context and everything. Yeah. Um. So I thought I'd do our first two parter talking about Terry Melcher, Charles Manson, Sharon Tate, and Roman Polanski. Wow. Oh man, I I've I, the other thing too. I've I've been waiting for you to tell the story. I knew it was coming one day. Mm-hmm. When we started this podcast, I was like, oh, he's going to talk about the Manson murders one day. Yeah. So trigger warnings on next week's episode because it, it yeah. is going to be Yikes. rough. Yeah. But that ends part one of my story. So sometimes we talk about some kind of bummery things. Yeah, we uh, do. For example, murder. Murder. Unrelentless, being horrible murder for petty reasons. Um, and so we like to balance that out with. Yours and our favorite segment, the self-care corner, where we'd like to talk about something nice that happened in our week to balance out the sometimes uh, weighty stuff that we talk about on this podcast. I'll go first. Yeah. Uh, I watched the last four or five episodes of the CW show Riverdale, and it's very good. Archie fucks, yeah. That was how the show started, and then they realized, oh, Archie's an idiot. (laughs) And they just basically make him a dumb-dumb like Kurt Russell buffoon. Oh my who's god. Who's just there while everyone Liam, else solves the mystery. You just said my like trigger, trigger phrase. Words. Yeah, yep. Kurt Ru- like a doofy handsome Kurt Russell. I might have to watch this television program. I now. hated the pilot and then once they kind of get rid of all the stuff in the pilot and just focus on Jughead and Betty solving a murder, like, with Veronica helping and Archie being there, like, wait, what's going on? I can explain it out loud. It's it's pretty fun. I mean, I've heard really, really good things on the sh- about the show. Yeah. They talked about it on Still Buffering a while back. Cole Sprouse kills it as Jughead. Mm-hmm. Jughead Jones. 
my self-care corner this week okay so like i don't have netflix because like i can't afford it and you know normally what happens in that situation is like your folks have a netflix account if they can afford it and you say uh mama papa or papa papa mama mama i don't want to discriminate here um you ask your folks hey rents can i have an account on your thing unfortunately my parents don't enjoy movies and they're so they don't have netflix and they were like yeah like there's nothing worth watching on netflix so we just shouldn't have it don't they know that there's television on netflix uh they do they just listen what do your parents watch my mom my mom's favorite show is the big bang that's the kind of household that i live in it's that's on netflix um certainly but so so the the end result is that there is no netflix but my good friend eric came over and we watched a movie and we had to do it on his netflix account and he has been kind and gracious enough to allow me like a day or two of of netflix on his account so i've just been like binging the fuck out of netflix movies eric you're an amazing friend thank you so much for letting me so yeah i have netflix briefly and i've been using it to full advantage and that's my self-care corner is i'm in a in a brief oasis in the desert okay let's do this quick you ready plugs facebook the major cast network twitter at media majors uh follow media all majors the sh- cast.com it's at media majors cast yeah Listen to the other shows on the Major Cast Network. Get in yes. contact with us via direct, DM us, tweet at us, Facebook Medi- us. We have an email. MediaMajorsPodcast at gmail.com. Submit self-care corners. Yes, uh, you can do that. We'd like to do. You know, write us a review for shout-outs. Leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, it can just be like one sentence. Just like, hey, guys, liked the show. Or if you didn't. Or, hey, guys, hated the show. Yep reviews help us out um fun fact you have pod i'm gonna keep doing this because people don't know that they don't they don't have people don't know that they have podcast apps on their iphones you do it's a little purple icon uh it's just just subscribe to us yes so easy and you don't have to do anything i think that's it i think so too all right thank you everybody for listening to another episode of media majors uh come back next week for part two of liam's story and a new tom lockney story and remember, we'll be there. Four. Come back next week to find out. <laughs>